My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 131 of Legally Clueless. Thanks for rocking with this podcast. Remember, you can join our online community on Instagram. We're at Legally Clueless Podcast. A link to it is in the show notes. And if you prefer Twitter and you want to chit chat about this podcast, make sure you use the hashtag Legally Clueless. Also, do not forget to check out our YouTube channel that has such amazing things. It's the latest baby to this family. (laughs) So once you head over there, you'll see season one of our video series, which is Bomb, full of amazing African stories on video this time. And what's currently ongoing is our tour series, the Mombasa episode has just gone out. It's the most recent video. Make sure you check it out. Watch some tidbits of the powerful stories we recorded while on tour in Mombasa and join us as we explored that wonderful coastal city. Ooh, so if you want to check out the YouTube, (laughs) there is a link to it in the show notes. But also, if you're listening on a platform that doesn't give you show notes, Just search Legally Clueless on YouTube, you will find us. Okay, now you know your way around here. (laughs) You can grab a seat and we can start this episode. So I'm really excited about the story that you are going to hear because first and foremost, it's so fantastic how many, well, it's three African countries that were involved in the recording of this. It's a story from Uganda, but we recorded it between Kenya and Senegal. Long story. Listen to this. I am from Uganda. I'm born and raised in the southwest of Uganda. I had not been to the capital. We were all fascinated by, oh, Kampala, someone lives in Kampala. I was like 19 years old, uh, my first day in the newsroom. I was sent back to the university I'm studying at to cover protests. I think a few weeks later, there was this senior editor. He calls me up and he's like, oh, nice story you have a phone number i can reach you on within like 30 minutes of giving him my number then i go back to my seat in the newsroom like the phone rings and it's this guy and he's saying like oh what are you doing today i'm like 19 years he's like 40 something but then in a few minutes i went to my email he had sent me an email and i think at some point the email was leaked by somebody and and then the newspaper had to have like a a crisis meeting that is roosevelt's story. Roosevelt is from Uganda and later on in this episode you'll hear her amazing powerful inspiring story. But before we get to it there is one thing that I wanted to share that I got up to last week that was just so money was a trip. (laughs) It was a trip. On Thursday last week I went to Limuru which for those of you who do not know is like what maybe like an hour's drive out, not even an hour's drive, maybe like 40 minutes out of Nairobi. Very green area, very silent, so beautiful. It would be my dream home if it wasn't for the cold weather. (laughs) I just have to, um, I like the sun. I don't know if I could hack Limuru all year round. But anyway, I went to a, I don't think it's enough to call it an Airbnb. It's, it's much more than that. It's a home that's called Odkwe. Odkwe in probably like my intonation is probably off. <laughs> my relatives who listen to this will just be like, are you serious? Odkwe is Luo, which is my ancestral language. And it means house of peace. And that's exactly what this house is. It's run by 
a wonderful woman called Amundi who I got connected to. Have you ever met someone and it feels like you've known them like all your life? That's... That's exactly the situation between Amundi and I. So she is a massage therapist. She's a herbalist and a wellness guru. And just like a fab woman, you need an Amundi in your life. So she invited me over to just experience Odkwe. And so on Thursday... I went and I'm so glad I did. And we shot the entire thing. So it's going to be on my socials. I don't know, maybe later this month. But when we got there, the first thing that struck me was just the silence. And immediately I could feel like my body just relaxed, which is just insane. Like I immediately felt like, oh, okay, it's time to take a nap. (laughs) So rested. What we then did was take a walk through the tea farms that are around the area. And it was so beautiful. We were just talking about life, talking about about tattoos, um, different things that we have experienced and navigated or are still navigating in life. It was just really nice walk surrounded by greenery and trees and ah, just so beautiful. And then we went back to the house where I got one of the most life-changing massages from Amundi. It was spiritual. Honestly, I, I do not have another word because First, it's like she's talking to your body. It made every other massage that I'd get, which honestly, even me, I was joking around because I used to get them like at hotels when you go on holidays. And those are not real, real like massages that are trying to connect with your body. Those are just like trying to make you feel like rested or whatever. But like this one with Amundi was spiritual. It felt like she was talking to my body. And before we did the massage, she was asking me where I feel like my stress rests on my body and my anxiety. And I definitely knew that was like my shoulder area, lower back area. I'd have like weird ass pains from those (laughs) areas. Then she got to work. I... (laughs) I keep just like she was talking to my body. They were having a conversation and I was just randomly eavesdropping. Because <laughs> like she pressed down on one area and it's almost like my body was telling her which next area to go to. And it was just, it was spiritual. So much so like when she was done and she was like, okay, I'm going to leave the room and let you zone out. I started crying and I can't even tell you why. <laughs> But it kind of just happened. Anyway, so she was like, Adele, you are tired. Your body is knackered. She told me she suspects the shoulder pains are linked to just my posture when I'm working at my laptop, etc, etc. And that my lower back pain is definitely emotional, which is so weird. It felt like she had been talking to my therapist. So I've had this lower back pain for a bit. It just like popped up in my life, like maybe we're in September, maybe end of July areas, July, around July. And because it was colder in Nairobi at that point, I was like, oh, it must be the cold. <laughs> but it's strange because I have never suffered from back pains or anything. And then you're just like, oh, you know, life over 30. <laughs> Things don't operate the way they usually do. (laughs) Anyway, but my therapist, because I had mentioned it in a session or two or three, she was like, it's strange because like this pain is coming when you are kind of anxious about going on tour and specifically going on tour to Kisumu and specifically while in Kisumu going to like my home home, ancestral home where my mother is buried. Going to my mother's grave is always just something that... (laughs) scares me. My therapist had brought it up, but I was just like, I feel like you're reaching. 
yes, I'm anxious. Yes, I'm nervous about it, but uh, I don't think this back pain is related to that. Genuinely, I think it's my ruby cold. <laughs> so it was so interesting to hear Mundi say these things because I was like, ooh, <laughs> second time. <laughs> that was a really interesting experience. But I did what I do best, which is when I'm confronted with something, I dive deep into reading up about it. And so one of the things after I came back from Odquay that I was reading about is the types of rest that people need. And I came across an article that talked about seven types of rest that we we all need. So the first one is physical rest. And they talked about this being either passive or active. So passive is like, okay, when you're sleeping or taking those two hour naps <laughs> that were meant to be 10 minutes, but anyway. And then active rest means when you do certain restful activities like stretching or like massage therapy. So both of those fall under physical rest. Second type of rest is mental rest. And some advice that the article gave was that you don't have to like go on vacation or do this big thing to achieve mental rest. You can actually schedule short breaks in your daily routines where you just get up and go for a walk or like journal, just Small, small short breaks during your day should help. The third type of rest is sensory. Yes, <laughs> my ancestors were about to make me change how that word is pronounced. Yes, yeah, so that's basically just taking a break from your laptop, bright lights, your computer, your phone, etc., etc. Fourth type is creative rest. Interesting. So this one, I think, is like allowing yourself to take in the outdoors and things that are natural, that really, for example, when I, right now, when I am around trees, I do not know why my poetry is being ignited by trees <laughs> currently. So when I'm around trees or just nature, all my stress fades away and what comes in its place is just like tons of poetry ideas, tons of sentences, words, concepts, like it's it's crazy. So I didn't know that's what I was doing, but that's part of creative rest. And then there is emotional rest, which is really about you taking a step back from being there for everybody and just trying to be there for yourself and confronting your real feelings, confronting where you at and acknowledging that. And then there was spiritual rest, which they said is basically the ability to connect beyond physical and mental and be aware of something greater than yourself. This is not saying that it has to be like tied to religion, but how you achieve this is any exercise that allows you to connect with yourself on like a deeper level, not a physical, not a mental, but like a spiritual level. I have linked, <laughs> I've linked the article in the show notes. It was quite insightful, but I'm also somebody who just loves reading up on things when I start overthinking them. <laughs> so it worked for me. But if you're intrigued, you can read the article. I'll link it in the show notes. All right, let's jump into the song of the week. I don't know what I sung that. Why am I still singing? Anyway, so the song is by Free Nationals and Chronics. I Love this song so much. Instantly when the beats start, I just feel like, whew, zen. And the name of the song is Eternal Light. So check out the show notes. I've put a link to the song. Oh, 
I really love it. I think one of my greatest regrets is not watching Chronix in concert when he came to Nairobi. Hopefully post-pandemic that will happen again. I don't know. <laughs> Saving up post-pandemic at this rate. Anyway, check out the song. I hope you connect with it as much as I did. Or do, actually, as much as I do. All right, let's jump into 100 African stories. And we are headed to Kampala. And I have to say a huge thank you to Power of the Streets, which is a new podcast from Human Rights Watch. They are the ones who connected me to Rosebell. So I think a couple of episodes ago, I told you about this particular podcast, which in season one, they're featuring young African activists who are leading human rights movements. And the focus was really young Africans who are fighting to end sexual violence. So they spotlighted quite a few activists from various countries, from Uganda, from Ethiopia, from Malawi, from Zimbabwe, like from so many countries. I know I mentioned this before, trying to find podcasts like this that celebrate a lot of African icons is so hard, which is why I share it with you. So if you check the show notes, there is a link to Power of the Streets, a new podcast by Human Rights Watch. Make sure you listen to season one. I know they're starting work on season two, which is probably going to be even more exhilarating. And you'll get to understand more about African activists who traditional media doesn't give enough time to, yet they're on the front lines really fighting for change in their countries. And you get to hear their stories and see them even as humans, you know what I mean? Speaking of which, which is why when I listened to the episode that featured Rosebell, I wanted to record her for Legally Clueless because I felt our stories were very similar. She started working in traditional media very early I did as well. And some of the things that she experienced, I didn't experience them exactly, but I can relate with. Anyway, it might not make sense now, <laughs> but let's reconvene after you listen to her story. 100 African Stories powered by the Power of the Streets podcast, telling the stories of African human rights activists leading the human rights movement in Africa. My name is Rosebel Kagumire. I am from Uganda. I'm born and raised in, south, in the southwest of Uganda. I would like to think that I've always been a storyteller. I remember my earliest memories being that kid who gathers around adults and entertains them, telling stories, doing drama, artistic from the word go, really as early as like five years, uh, my memory um, is very vivid about what I would do, the kind of stories I would probably visit like loads of aunties and come back with news about different things and <laughs> and uh, I could sound I was that overwhelming kid who could tell you so many stories about a place I've been to so I think that my love for stories and just to share the enthusiasm of sharing something you have seen has was always there and then as I grow older in my teenage years, I had uncles who were journalists, actually. So being at school in high school and reading newspapers in the library and seeing my uncle's name, that was like prestige, you know? I just wanted to be that, you know? It was like amazing to just be, because then I was, I was in Bushenyi and, the, and my uncles were working in the capital. I had not been to the capital. We were all fascinated by, oh, Kampala, someone lives in Kampala and they were 
work in Kampala and you can read what they are writing about right from home, from your school. It was very fascinating. And these are uncles I looked up to and saw their work and they were doing page one stories, basically page one stories. And, uh, and their name was just right there in front of you. This, as a teenager, this is like... Um, the best thing you want to see. This is somebody you're proud to associate with and you want so bad to be in their footsteps. So then in the end, of course, they influenced me uh, when I was going after after A-levels. My top course for university was mass, mass communication at uh, Makerere University. And actually one of my uncles taught mass communication at, at Makerere University. So I had so many people to show me the way and to look up to. And I, and I was very lucky that I passed very well, uh, went on a government scholarship and did mass communication. That's how I get into journalism. Wow. It was a culture shock. So uh, for me, I mean, we are talking about you growing up in a place until you're 18 years, you know, and then most of that time is between your village and your school, right? Because uh, it's boarding school. Then at 18, at 17, 17, you finish your high school and you're going into university and you're leaving the safety of everything you have known, right? Go into a city, even though you know some people, indeed I had uncles who would support me but you're going to a university and as a government uh, and I was very privileged also going on a government scholarship meant that I had free accommodation and free meals and uh, free tuition so my parents didn't have to struggle then to to put me to university I was already assured I'm gonna go right so I come but but in terms of of culture shock you're leaving your own home people don't always realize this like you're not you're, you're not raised in a city even though I had lived in a little town in our home but you're not ready for a capital you know the hustle and bustle and and uh, navigating safety and actually suddenly you're grown up you have been a kid people looking after you and in just one year you're supposed to wake up and be an adult and taking care of yourself and figuring out life on your own it's very overwhelming I don't think that many people prepare teenage girls and boys for this kind of transition from secondary school to university and especially leaving a home a rural area and you have to come and full-time live in the city so yeah so it was a huge uh, shock because I don't I don't speak the language in the city which is Luganda I did not you know you're coming into uh, university life as a as an 18 year old and you're supposed to be independent and making your own decisions so being at Makerere was was uh, for me it's always a very hazy <laughs> experience actually because I remember the first time I went there because I mean you are in Makerere like when you are in Uganda this is one of the top schools in Africa and in the top school in Uganda so you made it then you made it on a government scholarship so then you attend your first year of school you feel like oh where am I and and for me quickly university life actually got boring quickly for me because I was privileged to have uncles with the right connection in the media because they were working right in the media I requested to start working as an intern in a newspaper uh, much earlier. So I had that privilege. And then that meant that the rest of my university life after the first year was between the newsroom and in the in the lecture room. So it meant that actually I didn't really, really 
embed myself in university life, but rather I found myself as a university student, but also sort of post-university kind of life because my people who surrounded me, who supported me were journalists, older people uh, showing me around. I spent days covering riots, traveling out of, of the city when I had the time, out of school, expanding my view of the world. So I was very fortunate. So oftentimes for me, when people talk about university days, I had very few times, like, Fun, fun times where you think people are having uh, so much fun, but I never really engaged within the university much because I was one step in and one one foot in and one foot already outside in the world. I was like 19 years old, a really tiny little girl. Uh, my first day in the newsroom, I remember it was so like fascinating, but also overwhelming because you know how newsrooms are so busy, busy buddies. Everybody's rushing somewhere. Everybody has no time. <laughs> and you and you're like oh, how am I supposed to know this place if nobody has time for me? And then, so you start to, you know, it's a place that challenges you to read people. Which kind of people can you approach? Which other, you know, reading people from a distance, who is friendly, who is funny, who is witty, whom can you tag along, who can show you things? It forces you, it's just like a deep dive because you're really young. But also, it's, it's, uh, as a young woman, it brings a, a very, very specific and wanted attention. And the newsroom is a very male-dominated uh, place up to now, even after all these years. Uh, it's a very male-dominated space. And... Uh, and as a young woman, you're, you're around all these experienced uh, reporters. You're, you're really starstruck because these are people, even if I had an uncle who was already writing, uh, like these are other people you've always looked at. Some of your lecturers are in the same newsroom. I remember one of my lecturers whom I used to fear a lot, like really fear because he was always so strict. <laughs> Bernard Tabire, he was like really, really the, the lecturer that comes and puts you in two line. So, but... Suddenly now, after that, I was in the same newsroom with him and he was giving me assignments. I was always shaken when he called me to assign me something because I always saw him in the, he was both powerful in the newsroom and in my class. So um, those experiences, of course, shape you, open your eyes around power, but also the longer you stay around people you feel like you're scared of, you look up to, but you're really scared of, the longer you stay around them, the more you you demystify them, you see they're normal, you know their work pattern, you also realize they actually laugh with other people, they are normal. And, uh, but, but the first days the first days in the newsrooms, uh, in the newsroom are a bit dizzying because you don't know where to start, even when you have already known all these people, you're trying to figure out power do i approach them do i talk to them what are the boundaries and then who are your friends and then i think in a few weeks after i joined also a batch of other interns came in so you're going to always move towards uh, connecting with the newcomers too so uh, that helps a lot then you both navigate to the newsroom together but i remember it being very uh, overwhelming but also I remember walking in because people the senior editors tell you where to go whom do you tag along they're signing with somebody and I remember them insisting that you know we had this was daily monitor uh, newspaper so we had this flow which was occupied by the features what we call the features section and for some reason most women worked in the features section and being a very defiant person I always I felt like no like I don't want to be there I want to know how to go to the field every day run in these political battles 
cover a press conference on political parties, where the action is. So so I remember the first days being pushed towards going and working in the features section, which is very important. It's more well thought out stories that take long of research. But I was an action person. Like I wanted action and I stayed in the main news, everyday news section. And I was able to learn a lot from my colleagues, even though the, the section is still very male dominated. The one story I covered that you cannot forget, well, there's so many. I was studying at Makerere and working at Daily Monitor. Then one of the earliest days, you know, if you know Makerere, it has a history of protesting and people resist from school fees to all sorts of requirements. Uh, students are always protesting something, which was something that I didn't experience as a student. Uh, so it was amazing to experience it as a journalist, you know. So I was sent back to the university I'm studying at to cover protests. And the protest in Uganda means that the police comes in and military comes in, bullets are flying. Very scared for my life, actually. A lot of looting of neighboring uh, neighborhoods with the university. Uh, even when the cause starts very well, often, you know, uh, criminality enters and especially when the police is firing bullets and stuff, then people take advantage of looting people's shops and stuff, that kind of chaos. So instead of uh, a protest remaining peaceful, it, it is quickly turned into a riot by the police and that continues to be the reality in Uganda but that was my introduction to politics of the country as a student and at the same time a journalist going back to my university to cover a protest which was I think around school fees hikes you're either trying to dodge the stones from the protesters or the bullet from the police so yeah so I remember that very well you know sexual harassment is a reality in our society so it's also a reality in many institutions it's about power it's about someone thinking they have power over you to silence you to do anything to have unwanted calls unwanted touches of your body unwanted you know gestures messages you know sexual harassment is a very very big problem you can imagine as i'm a, i'm just a teenager right like you're a teenager and you're coming to a newsroom with sheer passion and you want to learn to be honest like i think i was deeply naive in terms of like uh, you know in, in in uganda we have a lot of single you know sex schools so i went uh, primarily a girls school all my, you know, teenage life. So suddenly you're at university and then you're in a newsroom where people have power over you. I had never experienced that kind of power dynamics in my entire life where, you know, somebody was trying to use their power to access me. But also at the same time, it's just like you're barely out of your teenage uh, life and your idea of self and sexuality is really... Um, not quite clear, you know, like you don't, uh, to be honest, like seeing yourself as a sexual being, right? So oftentimes I was shocked, like the things people are saying, I'm like, why are you even saying that? To me? Like, I'm not even paying attention to that kind of stuff. So I remember like uh, the first time, actually, the it must have been the first or second day, I was outside the building of the newsroom and I'm waiting for what we call Boda Boda in Uganda, which is a motorbike taxi. And one of the senior reporters that I knew came and said, hey, where are you going? And uh, 
I'm like, oh, I'm trying to get back to uni. You know, that's where I'm staying. And then he straight up started say, like chatting me up. Like, this is my my second day at work. And, and like, oh, you want to go out with me? And I'm like, no, <laughs> there's no way. I don't want to go out with you. I don't know you and leave me alone, <laughs> right? So I was, I was there like on my second day. I'm like, that is really strange. And, and so this person barely knew. I was just introduced two days before, a day before something. And here we were, you know? So anyways, as, as we went on, then there were also other interns. And, and I was very lucky also, I think, my experience because I had an uncle in the newsroom. So a lot of people knew that. They were aware of that. So, so somehow that protects you. People are careful about what they say to you because your uncle is also a senior journalist, just like their peers. So I think they would, you know, have some shame around that. So I think other other girls do not have the same same experience because people men were always aggressive. These older reporters were always aggressive towards them, like really chasing them. And I think when you were like nineteen and you're in a newsroom and this person you see as a star is giving you this unnecessary attention, you you take it seriously. So unfortunately, a lot of girls were you know were, were taken advantage of. I see that as power abuse, not just sexual harassment, but also as children where the power dynamics are against you as a young person in the newsroom that even if you you're consenting to things i mean we are 19 20 you're technically an old person you can consent but the power dynamics is what makes a difference with workplace harassment because it could actually begin like okay you know i'm interested you know the attention and stuff but you think you know the whole picture but this person has been longer here everybody knows like he's you know, had relationships with all girls in the newsroom and, and then you don't have that full full picture, right? And and as a young person that crushes your esteem when you realize, oh my God, I am just one of the so many girls this guy is after. And that creates a very toxic work environment for a young person. Because if it were two people, then they would know the two adults who were similar power they, they would know that, that what is at stake but as a young person you don't have all the information and you don't have the power if anything in that relationship goes sour you you are not you're not the person who's going to survive likely that person who who is senior to you will survive will use the situation against you and and all sorts of experiences so i saw a lot of girls my age who came in the same time interns go through a lot of hell because you know it is probably their first relationship they think oh you know he likes me but actually this guy is up to no good you know a lot of them are pushed to, to, you know it affects their self esteem and how they can work and their belief in their self, they start self-doubting in the newsroom. And, and that pushes pushed a lot of them out of the newsroom. And after that initial experience myself, I, I thought that, uh, you know, okay, I have my footing. But then I think a few weeks later, there was this senior editor, sub-editor, basically in the ordinary language. It's like this, you have different editors. And these are the editors that lay the pages of the newspaper who determine where probably uh, which story is going to be where. So I have this story and uh, he calls me up and he's like, oh, 
oh, nice story and all this stuff. I'm like, thank you. He's like, oh, do you have um, a phone number I can reach you on? Because, you know, sometimes we have feedback because I was studying, you know, I'm not constant in the newsroom. Uh, we have feedback. I might want to ask you about it. And innocently, actually, I give him my number. Uh, <laughs> I remember it was a very little phone my uncle had bought me. Within like 30 minutes of giving him my number, then I go back to my seat in the newsroom. And within actually 30 minutes, like the phone rings, then I'm like, okay, I don't know who this is. And they're like, oh, guess who this is? You know, I thought like, it's my friends, you know, at that point, few friends had phones. So whoever would have a phone, like it was a thing to have a phone, you know? So I think like, okay, you know, I don't have much time like to do this guesswork. If you figure out, call me back. So I just hung up. And then I hang up my personal phone in the intercom and the office rings. I pick it. And it's this guy is like, hey, you know, this is the person you've just given your number. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like, what the hell? What do you want? Like, um, literally, I could see this person across the newsroom. Like, I was like, this is strange. If you want something, you you could actually yell my name. I'm just across the newsroom. And he's saying like, oh, what are you doing today? Uh, this evening, I want to take you out. This is a man, like, I'm, I'm like 19 years and probably he's like 40 something. And I just look at him. I'm like, wow. I just hang up. You know, I didn't have any words. I told him I was going out for an assignment. He's like, okay, what about tomorrow? I'm like, uh, you know, I don't know about tomorrow. Then I hang up. So uh, I just thought, okay, difficult situation. I can ignore it. But then in a few minutes, I went to my email. He had sent me an email. Really, you know, saying, hi, I like you. You know, you're this and this. You're beautiful. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I was, I, I think the email like really triggered me. Like, who the hell are you? You know? So I was quite triggered. I was like, who? how why would you be stalking me this is was actually stalking so i responded to his email because i could in the in, on the call i couldn't have the words because everybody can hear you in the newsroom so on the email i was i was so bold i was like you know just act your age <laughs> things like that you know <laughs> i'm 19 years old and I'm, I'm telling this man act your age i'm not here on a beauty show things like you know really take down like the shade i cannot even believe like i had this uh like in me you know to just like i didn't think of anything i thought this person needs to be put in their place and i did exactly that i say just keep your space leave me alone and ask your age i don't i don't want anything from you and i'm not here for my beauty, I'm here to do my work. End of story. I hit send. And after like a couple of an hour, I'm like, oh, wait. I hadn't quite understood the power dynamics in the newsroom. I'm like, oh, let me think. So I quickly tried to call my uncle to tell him about the situation, but then he wasn't around. So there was this photographer friend of mine. He's like a senior photographer, but he's really cool. I had gone out with him on assignments. And I asked him, who is that guy? You know, what does he do? What's his job exactly? <laughs> and he tells me, oh, he's, a, he's the chief. He's a chief of the sub-editors. And he determines where I think. I'm like, whoa. 
And then he said, what happened? Why are you asking? I did not tell him. But imagine, like, this was a man who has that power. And then I start panicking, like, my stories are never going to see the light of day because I put down this guy. So I had to tell my uncle, like, to just protect myself. Like, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. I forward him the email. He sends me a message that he wasn't in the newsroom. He's like, you know, calm down. Everything will be fine. But, you know, many people wouldn't have this kind of the courage to tell someone off, but also to have the backup plan, like someone could have your back to be able to ask them, like, have I crossed the line? Even in defending yourself. Imagine you have to be really mindful, like, am I crossing the line? But who, what is the line, you know, if you're defending yourself? That was the experience. And uh, and I think at some point the email was leaked by somebody. And, and then the newspaper had to have, like, a, a crisis meeting and talk about, like, harassment of interns and stuff. But they never really had policies or even when we walked in nobody briefed us and said this is it these are the powers this is who this is what there was nothing like that so we were just swimming in the you know in the dark you know that was my experience but I was lucky that actually I had people who have my back I think that experiences shape us and they prepare us in a way that we might not everyday think of because for me when that happens and it was over I just put it behind myself and did my work and I must say like from that moment I was always aggressive and assertive like you don't cross my line you do not I do not allow everybody knows who's worked with me you don't cross the lines and after that to, to be honest pretty much I don't I don't remember I think that that kind of power it's a it's a thing of power that sometimes people notice the power in you and uh, and once you have found that power then sometimes the ordinary kind of harassment kind of uh, I think I would like to think that once you you know what it is and you name what it is and you take your power, you're able to even deflect whatever would have tried to come your way. Uh, but also later, of course, uh, then I worked in television and a lot of times I traveled alone with a camera and uh, the harassment then afterwards was actually from sources and from men that you had to go and interview I remember, you know, interviewing a senior government official and going to their office. They knew me. I had interviewed them several times. And in, one, in this one moment, I go and, and, and the office door is closed. And it's just me and him. And he was just looking at me like I almost uh, disappeared in the chair, right? Like he's a very senior government official. And I'm worried. Like I, I'm here to ask him. I'm asking questions. He's playing them like you know not shyly but not seriously as if like i'm not like this is not the main reason i'm in his office you know he's giving off that vibe we all know like when someone is you have this intuition in your heart when someone is about to cross the line and you're really fingers crossed to pray to your ancestors and i don't know who that this does not happen because if that happens it's if he crosses the line you have very few choices you're gonna have an outburst you, like it's never going to be the same for you. And yet this is an official whom you go to often to get responses of government on, on different things, on different policies, on different actions. So there were those moments like I just pray in my chair like, OK, I hope that he does not cross this line because it's going to have an impact on how not only how I see him, but I never want to be ever near him, right? So being, feeling so intimidated, there are all these tactics. You might not be able to actually have words for it. These situations where you feel cornered by somebody, this is their space and 
and they're trying to push you in a certain direction, like you're here for an interview, right? So there had been those kind of moments. Also, like being at office and, and somebody, a top city official is like, oh, I'm sending you a car to pick you up. Can I meet you for a coffee? Like, I'm like, what's in your mind? You know, wh- where does this come from? And literally sending the car into your parking lot and you're like i have to hide like i have to switch off my phones basically and those things happened like so yeah and and also other circumstances where you were like in the field you're covering i was covering the the end of the war in northern uganda and often you were around soldiers and, uh, and in the field and the peace talks and stuff and you just feel like you're the only woman actually in the in the in the room and all these people are looking at you like, you know, when you feel it, <laughs> I don't know, it's very ridiculous. Like when you're in a, a room full of men who look at you in a certain way, like in, it's violent. You know, you feel like people are tearing your body apart, you know, but without words, like you just see it and you feel it and you cannot easily vocalize this, you know, because people will, th- you will tell you you're crazy. You're imagining it because they have not been in that second, in the situation. So I, I remember those moments in, in being surrounded by in a rooms, for example, being in Sudan during the LRI war and you're surrounded by men in peace talks and, and every day there's somebody, some other man coming to your door to knock. That constant harassment, but this is specific because it's in the field and it's far away from home. And it's in a war-like situation. So how do you even navigate that? It's even more trickier. But I was also at that t- at that point covering the war in understanding the sexual, the mass sexual violence that was done by both the rebels in northern Uganda and the soldiers, and the government soldiers. So I was, of course, very aware of this kind of mass sexual violence. And I was covering it, and I was covering their teenage mothers, girls my age, who had like three children from rapes, right? And I was very, very aware. So I was not experiencing this outside, like naivety of thinking that this doesn't happen. I was right there both seeing the sexual harassment on, on uh, like towards me, but being aware that this could be the very same men who raped these women I'm talking to. As a, as, as a female journalist, like slowly then you, you connect these dots. Your lived realities are the same realities as the women you are covering actually even if their situation is extreme even if their situation is in a war situation but often it's this it's, it's this connection connect your struggles basically that's what i would say uh how would you tell somebody that they too matter right like their action matters because our what we call the system what allows these kind of things to go on is also individual action so action and inaction you live in a society where there's so much so many systems of oppression against you but also the systems that privileges you and oppresses other people so how do you constantly learn about those and you could experience something and you could feel helpless about it but if you don't build consciousness then of how that is not just an individual experience, but actually it connects so many other experiences. I think for me, that's the bedrock of any action that 
it's not just you. It's not just you. Nothing happens to you in a vacuum. You live in a society. You're living at the intersection of systems that you've found and emerging systems different, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, misogyny. Could be all sorts of operations that we see and we are born into. It could be poverty. It could be if you're a queer person on the continent. It could be maybe you come from an ethnic minority. So I think that you have to know that it's at the end of the day, your experience is your experience, but it does not happen in a vacuum. And most times it's not just you. It, it, it has happened so many other people before and it will happen. But your choice to talk about it is your own prerogative. It's your own terms. You have to find that comfort time level to be able to be okay with talking about it and sometimes you might never find it for some of the gross violations that happen rape because of the mere silencing that still continues right like it's not like you are going to wake up and say i'm gonna say no i think like building voice is a process by process so asking yourself every day like you know what am i what am i working on you know what should aspect of myself you know can i work on because you can't do things for others if you haven't done them for yourself truly you can't have that kind of huge impact if we see any people we look up to like historically they had to do those things they had to explain the systems to their own lives they had to connect what's happening around the society to how their own lived experiences were in order to make an impact so to anyone who thinks that their effort is too small or they must be in a position of power, I think we all carry power, but we carry it differently. And I think it was uh, James Baldwin who said that the world is a very difficult place in terms of consciousness, like people's consciousness. If you could even move just one needle, you know, I'm paraphrasing, just one step, you would have had a major impact because the impact you're looking at is, I think, a collective impact. You alone cannot cause an impact. But if you do your job just that one step towards the collective action, then then it's very important. It, it's very important to take stock of what you're doing. What kind of change do you want to see? Life is not just about you and you and you, but what kind of what contribution do you want to do? Because there's so much there's so much pain around us and there's so many opportunities for us to, to, to contribute to solutions that I think that you have to ask yourself, what is that one needle that I'm moving today that is going to contribute to the greater impact that I want to see in this world? Even when sometimes you feel powerless because systems are there to make us feel powerless. But I think it's okay to feel powerless for a moment. You cannot feel powerless forever because that's a disease. A hundred African stories. Pause the Street Season One brings you captivating and intriguing stories from activists leading the Me Too movement and resistance against sexual violence. Pause the Street now available on Apple Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed that story by Roseville. I absolutely love her energy and just how she breaks down different things that you don't really think about, like power dynamics and how that plays out in the newsroom or just in any office setting when you're talking about interns, sexual harassment and that kind of space. You know what I mean? I absolutely connected with her story. I remember working in traditional media and this is actually 
like it's not exaggerated it's not make-believe a lot of interns where I worked were experiencing sexual harassment and what's really sad is because there's not enough knowledge on it so even the interns didn't know that that's what they were experiencing they just knew a man in the newsroom who does things that make me uncomfortable but I guess we kind of have to just navigate around this person you know and I remember it really got bad one when there was a research done And the media house that I was working at at the time was among the top three media houses that had the highest number of sexual harassment cases. And so there was a meeting for the female employees. And what was strange is that a couple of us were not invited to this meeting. (laughs) We only found out it happened later on. And most of us are the loudmouths. I don't know if that was on purpose or what. But anyway, amongst other things that were said in this meeting, which was chaired by the HR at the time, was that the female employees need to stop being so close to the male colleagues, stop trying to be friends with them. Um, some examples that were given, oh, you're letting them whisper to you things about the way you're dressed. And it was it was along those lines. It was along those lines, which is just so sad. But obviously with time, I do know they did develop um, a sexual harassment policy and then had a lot of workshops for the employees. But just to go back to Roosevelt's story, it's not exaggerated. It is a thing. I would love you to get to know Roosevelt a bit more in the work that she does. So make sure you check out her episode on the Power of the Streets podcast by Human Rights Watch. There's a link to that podcast in the show notes. And not just her story. I mean, that first season just shares stories of young African activists, you know, sharing how they began their journey in activism. They share a bit about their lives. So, you know, really humanizing activists and the cost of the work that they do in their day-to-day lives. You will hear from mothers, entrepreneurs, pet owners, (laughs) writers, and so much more. I really did enjoy listening to that first season, actually, of the podcast. And I'd love for you to connect with the work that Roosevelt is doing with a digital platform she has called African Feminism. It's a collaborative writing project between different African authors and writers. And it's really like one space where everyone who identifies as a feminist or those who want to learn more about feminism, those who want to understand what's happening around that space in different African countries can come to. So if you check out the show notes, I've put a link to it. If you're listening on a platform with no show notes, <laughs> Paula Sana, just go to africanfeminism.com and you can connect with her work there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode to the very end. Just a reminder that you can catch this podcast on Trace Radio in Kenya every Monday and Wednesday at 12 noon and 11 p.m. and every Friday at 12 noon. Head over to traceradio.co.ke for a list of the frequencies so you can tune in the old-fashioned way if you're in Kenya. And if you are outside of Kenya, you can stream on the website. Lastly, go to our YouTube channel, check out the Mombasa episode. It's absolutely fantastic. And later this week, The Nakuru episode in our tour series goes out. Yeah, I'd love you to connect with it because it's something new that we've done. We put our hearts and our souls and our sweats 
there were no tears but even that <laughs> maybe tears of joy we put all of that into this and i'm very proud of what the entire team has achieved and that's why i really want you to check it out so head over to legally clueless on youtube or just check the show notes for a link that's it for this episode of legally clueless you can share this podcast with your friends you can keep it for yourself i'm not judging just make sure you're here next week for the next episode <laughs>